Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. We have with us today Fred Dust uh, in another one of our online conversations. And very appropriately, we're talking about his new book, Making Conversations. Uh, we hope that you've enjoyed the 300 and some programs we did since this COVID crisis began in March. And uh, tonight, or this afternoon as it is, um, we are going to be talking to Fred about how to make good conversations. Uh, we hope that we've followed some of these rules that he's laid out uh, over the last year. Um, but we're going to go into the details of it. He's certainly done a great investigation over his life on this. So, Fred, welcome to the Commonwealth Club. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. It's like I, I remember well when I went to go see Leon Panetta, I think, um, at the Commonwealth Club, like years and years and years ago, like for the first time. So happy, like a real honor. It's a pleasure to have you with us. And uh, so uh, you start your book with a little bit of history of how you got involved in in this case, political conversations, uh, an organization that was extremely well known for doing uh, clever uh, things to attract attention. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that and how, how it, it moved you in the direction of conversations, and then we'll back up a little bit. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I, 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 went, I went back and forth between majors in college where I was actually doing like political, I, I was studying like comparative revolution, um, South African studies, things like that. And I was on my way to go to Zimbabwe. I, I'd gotten a fellowship to go and be and work with guerrilla soldiers and in, in in Zimbabwe, and or was was applying for it. And I suddenly was like, "Why am I doing this when there's this is happening here on the ground in the U.S.?" Because it was like the late '80s, um, HIV/AIDS was happening, and there's this remarkable creative organization called ACT UP that's doing this remarkable stuff. And so I went and um, and worked with ACT UP for a while. I, I will say I didn't work at the epicenter of the ACT UP movement, which really was here on the East Coast. Um, it, I, I worked in kind of Seattle, um, where it was kind of a little less um, ACT UP-y than, than some things. But still, I, I was so inspired by what they what, what, what they do. And, and I think sometimes people forget that they existed. And it's, it was a really important, powerful organization, I think. I think it's pretty hard for anybody who was paying attention to forget about ACT UP. Um, I, you know, especially after the other ways that people tried to get attention for their um, issues in the 70s and the 80s. I thought ACT UP was very clever about how they went about it. Uh, and it was obviously a crucial time. But um, yeah, I think anybody who was paying attention remembers ACT UP. Yeah, and it's important to, re to say that, you know, at that point, we, we talked about that as, as, as a sort of being a, a genocide level event, right? And, and, it's like, and that was both here, but that was also in Africa. And it's like, and, and so it was really, it was, it was, it was a really eerily, close to, to, to moments that we, we know now, actually, in some, in some ways. Yeah, it's, you know, of course, AIDS has been not conquered, but, but uh, modified and put in a box and, and controlled. Um, people don't realize how close to a death sentence that was um, at the time when it came out and for the first four or five years um, and, and how, how scared people were. And the only reason that they are more afraid now is because no one knows how this is being transmitted, COVID-19. Whereas once you found out how... Uh, uh, what, what it didn't get transmitted, what AIDS did not get transmitted by, it was easier to deal with people who had AIDS for a lot of people. But there was a lot of fear for a while about that. That's right. And, you know, I think what's interesting about that is that it, it was a really critical part about the notion, if it, in a way, it kind of like it helped birth the idea of making conversation, because the reality is you couldn't at that moment, for instance, just be with somebody who said, trust me. Right. Um, that, 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 did, that didn't work. You had to have a real conversation about how, how and you had to kind of agree upon the rules of interaction. And um, so it's interesting, George, I, I wrote I wrote a little piece for Instagram, believe it or not, that was on the, the rules of covid like gatherings during um, during uh, for thank for Christmas. And it was amazing how accurate it was, was also for the idea of consensual sex or. Um, the idea of uh, ideas of kind of like just like disease transmission or I mean, it just is fascinating, really, really interesting how like how like it kind of spans a whole bunch of different kinds of conversations. Sorry, I didn't mean to get into sex right up right up front. No, no, that's all right. Uh, everyone's everyone's expecting it, Fred. So <laughs> um, and, and uh, did you ever get to Zimbabwe? You know, I did. I I I got to South Africa. I got to Cape Town, and then I got like to the border of Zimbabwe. Um, uh, once for for a lecture, and that was only only once. But just to give you a context of when this was, this was while Mandela was still in prison. 
you know, so like, I remember writing a paper being like, where do we think, like, what will happen with Mandela in the next five years? And literally, I remember, like, a minutes later, like, he had, he had been released. It was a really phenomenal moment. Fascinating. Yeah. Well, it, it's uh, something that intrigued me all the time, too. And actually, I was in Zambia for a, a month and a half while Rhodesia was becoming Zimbabwe, uh, a little bit before you were thinking of going there. But uh, that's a totally different conversation. So um, let's talk about how you also had um, a model for really good conversations and why. You mentioned that you're in, in, in several things in your book and other places that your mother was a great conversationalist, but you had a couple, you had a, she had a couple of reasons why. So why don't you tell that story? My, my, my mother was actually what I would call like kind of the perfect listener. Like, so she like, she, in the, in the sense that she like, she listened with such joy. Right. So it's like, so she, she, I sometimes say like, listen, like it's gossip, listen, like something that you really want to be hearing. And my mom did that. And what was interesting is that people, strangers would come up to her on the street and just like, they'd want to tell her their life story and she'd be interested and engaged. And so, you know, George, as you, as you know, like at some point I, with my teams, when I was like, Oh, you guys are getting a little less good at listening. Like you're spending more time on your devices and taking notes as opposed to really like leaning and listen. I thought at first I I was like, listen, like your mother. And that obviously does not work in all cases. <laughs> and so that that's that's how we right. It's like and so that that's how we developed the idea of kind of creative listening is like we need I was like we need something that's a bit more has more theory and science and psychology behind it than than just listen like your mother. Yeah, especially especially if you want this to last because uh, the generation whose mothers are all on on uh, their phones the whole time that they're pushing them around, they're not going to want to listen like their mother did. Uh, at least that won't be helpful. And, and, you know, I mean, to be honest, to really, to be really honest, like my great grandmother, my great, yeah, my, my great grandmother was a really phenomenal. She was like, I learned everything I learned about storytelling from my great grandmother. Like it's like, and who could tell these like perfect 20 second stories, um, that I, I talk about in the book a little bit. And, um, and, and really she, she was a magical storyteller. Yeah. And you, you talk about that in your location section too, about the, the bench that she used to tell her stories on. I thought that was, it was nice. We'll go, we'll probably get to that when we get to that section. Um, so, but you you also mentioned that your mother maybe was lively because uh, in her conversations, because she had a deaf brother. And so she had learned sign language and was more expressive, but she must've also listened too. she must've also been a real listener, not just a, a, a dramatic persona. Yeah, and if, and when you when you're when you're in a, a household with a deaf, you know, so one of the things that happens because it was her brother, like the family chose silence because it's like they 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 in, in essence they gave him kind of priority. But what happens is you start to listen with your complete body when you're in when you're in a household where actually you can't hear. Um, and so it's this really remarkable thing. It's why one of the things I suggested earlier on is the idea that like consider having an all silent you know, Thanksgiving or an all silent meal. And like, and, and what, what can you do in, in, in that kind of context? And, and George, I should say one thing that, that also really made it feel like it was really critical to me was the notion that when I was 24, my mom, not the notion, the thing that my, my mom had a stroke, a pretty severe and serious stroke um, that left her um, aphasic, which meant that she could still listen, but it was harder to listen. And so to be honest, my, my mother June Dust would would reach out and 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 you know hold my hand hold my face just so she could kind of make sure she could take that in and that was a that was really powerful the notion that basically like she she was working like and she was working really hard to make sure that she was still listening to you and that that I thought was really just fairly stunning for me and very very influential on everything. I mean, one of, sorry, I'll, I'll, I won't meander, but the, one of the things that really came out of that was that I was like, I've got a timestamp on me, you know, it's like, cause her father had died of a stroke at 30. And like, it's like, and my job is to be out there and meet everybody in the world. Like, just like, just like, just like get to know everyone's life and, and learn as much as I possibly can. And so that's kind of, that, that's a lot of what made the book happen actually is this weird hunger. Well, you well, you lay out seven uh, different uh, parts of uh, really good uh, communications and c- conversations, and the first two sound like your parents. Uh, you know, commitment and creative listening. Um, so, commitment. Let's talk about commitment first, because it's very interesting. You you make the point that you need to to want to have a conversation, and you, you as the antithesis of that, 
you mentioned how most people are sitting there waiting during a conversation until they get their turn to speak. So, so how do you get that commitment and how do you stop the antithesis, which is extremely common. You can see it in almost any conversation, although some people don't wait, you know, they just keep talking. Well, you know, it's really funny, George. So I, I will say that, um, Diane Morris, who has the Diane Morris lecture series in, 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 in the Bay area. I don't, I don't know if you, you've been, um, and has been, has been like a, I mean, a, a dear friend to me all the, all the way through. So um, she invited me to come do a lecture at, at her series, La, God, whenever. <laughs> like, it's like two years ago. I, I, can't, I can't remember exactly when it was. But, um, and at that point, like, I only had six C's. Um, it just, just, you know, and like, I didn't, I did, I didn't have commitment, you know, and, and we knew we had to get to seven C's. Like, that's like a, that's a, a basic, right? And so um, I did that lecture and somebody raised their hand in the audience. So I, I really owe it to the Bay Area. Um, uh, so somebody said, well, what happens when um, somebody comes at me and they hate me and like, they already like disagree with me. And, and, I, and I was like, oh, right. That's, that's a thing <laughs> that, that happens now. <laughs> and so I was like out of my back pocket. I had no idea. I was like, well, what you do is you commit to them. You commit, you commit to the people first in a conversation and you hold your values secondary, um, which, which interestingly, George, has both kind of like relevance if you think about the innovation process, which is like often we ask you to kind of put your ideas back behind you and then, and then kind of go forward, but also is related to something that I hadn't realized influenced me, which was theater when I was in high school and doing improvisation, which I don't, I don't know if you know the rules of improvisation, but one of them is this notion of, of, of you're there, you're committed to the people on stage, like you're there to make them successful and not. And so the very, the really famous story is, I don't know if you know this one, but that, that Joan, um, Joan Rivers came onto second city stage and they did it. They were like, okay, the scene is you're getting a divorce. And her husband was like, but Joan, what about our children? And she was like, we don't have any children. And that's the exact opposite. That's like, it's, I mean, it's funny. It, it got her, it got her a laugh, but the guy was something like, wait, what? Like, it's like there. And so, so there's really interesting kind of tenets around why you, why you commit to the people to help them make them amazing if you can. And then, and, and then if you can't, then yeah, it's just, you, you don't, you don't go, you don't join. Well, I, I was laughing because as soon as you said Joan Rivers, I knew she was going to be the antithesis. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, very, very, very funny. But but um, she's not not going to hand it off to somebody else. Um, the interesting thing about that uh, holding your uh, beliefs lightly is that that's basically the scientific attitude toward it, too. And so, um, you know, part of our culture, I mean, uh, human culture has not been that adamant about that kind of idea ever. But our scientific culture that keeps growing is because... Uh, you know, if you don't hold your, your theories lightly, you don't learn uh, when something new comes in. You, you can be too stuck to it. And it's the habit of everybody to be stuck to what they learned as a child, they learned here, or they learned in grad school as a scientist, you know, and get, get their PhD. And, and so uh, it's a useful thing across the board in culture. You, you, you can't just give up whatever you think. But if you hold it lightly, then you're at least open to another possibility. That's that's so interesting. It's like it's it's, it's like I think the, the the reference to scientific methodology really really resonates. I, I I I do work with the Rockefeller Foundation, which has just been a delight to do during during this, and and have been doing some work on pandemics and pandemic preparation with their pandemicist John O'Quick, um, who wrote the End of Pandemics. And it's so interesting how like he's he's so good at this because he can commit but but also like not commit like it's like he's, he, he can do the right kind of like he's like we don't know like it's like we're gonna today we don't know and so we have to just kind of continuously evolve our hypotheses i think so yeah it's a you know you have so many good stories from different institutions that you've worked with uh in your book um but in in the case of uh, the rockefeller foundation too uh it's just an aside but you know the john d rockefeller i think junior the one who set up the fund he was a very conservative man and he wanted certain things done with his money and he set it all up. And, you know, within 10 years, the board of directors uh, after he'd passed, it all had different ideas and everything got changed around. And it's a good example of not holding so strongly to, to what you think, because if you set up any organization and expect it to keep going after your death, the way you want it to, you're, you're deluding yourself. Yeah, no. And it's interesting. Cause like one of the places that were, I, I was a resident, I was fortunate to be a resident at the Rockefeller at Bellagio um, in, in Lake Como as I was writing the book. And, um, and it's an interesting thing. That's a great example where this is this place where it's a very, it has a lot of convenings and gatherings of very important people who come together. And, um, and it, um, it really like, 
it's a great example where every time like somebody new comes in that you reevaluate well does this matter like should we even be doing this kind of gathering and convenings and then it, they always come back to yes it does matter like we we need to be having these conversations and continuously so i i think it's a you you bring up a great point george which is like it's like you know always evaluate like it's like like it's like you know like it, it does it still feel right oh it maybe it does you know it's like and, and, I, and I think that's like that's something that, that we really need to get good at is kind of like be, be kind of like pretty good about being like does this, this make sense for us well you don't go into it directly but i think one of the things in, in you talk about in the covid uh, pandemic and the effect on everybody um is in, in having conversations is that we're doing this all by zoom instead of in person and zoom is and, and if you adapt to it you can actually be very personal and and be a good listener and and do good conversations over zoom but the technology isn't as good as in person and, and never will be just like uh, people who've always worried that live theater would disappear um, because of movies. It, it's not never going to, because there's, there's a different uh, thrill going on when the, there's individual minds right there doing the performance. Um, so the same thing with conversations, but as, as you say, I mean, we can still do, if you follow the rules, if you, if you, if you pay attention to what you're talking about and that what you're aiming for, um, you still can achieve it even with, technological interference in our daily lives uh, in, in this way. Yeah, no, I, th I think that's right. And also I will say, you know, it's like uh, one thing that just, I will say about the book is that it's like, it, it actually, or, or about, about my theory around this is that it's like technology doesn't necessarily degrade the conversation. It actually, it, it's just another form. And one of the things I talk about, there's like a, like a short section that's about how to have conversations during a pandemic on the, it's like, it's like at the very end during, during on, on zoom. And I'm basically like, it's like, choose the medium for the for what for what you need to do right so like there are things where the right thing to do is just to get on the phone with somebody and just have a kind of conversation like in a very kind of like whatever sometimes it's zoom sometimes it's like a google doc you know it might be the right way and then i live in a two rural context i live in maine and upstate new york and so honestly i got to see a friend of mine last night we were outside counting the stars you know it's like in in it was cold but it was like it was still there was togetherness around it and so um, I think I think there's it's if we if we get creative around what the medium is, we can actually still have these these really important conversations um, that, that we need and, and get that sense of belonging and connection that we so need to, to continue. Well, you focus on what the substance of conversation should be, what the goal is. And, and uh, I think when you're forced into a new situation, new technology, you might it might force people to get out of the habits they were in and maybe be a little bit. Uh, more attentive to what the substance is of what they were going for. So it might, even, even when people go back to the way things were, they might be much more attentive and appreciative of what we had. So I, 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 I have, I have a lot. Yeah, I know it doesn't seem like it's in vogue, but I have, I have a lot of hope um, around, around this. And I'll tell you a funny story, George, about the book, which I don't think is in there, but the, the book I, I sold was about failing conversations. Like why, why have we lost the ability to have conversations? So sold that go meet with my publisher my publisher it's like it's like you know like you go to a fancy japanese restaurant like you feel like you're a new york city like author and it's this amazing thing and she basically stops and she's like by the way you can you can't use the word design in in the title because it'd been called designing dialogue and then she's like and by the way it has to be relentlessly optimistic and i was like what <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And I, I was like, okay, that's a different book. But, but, but honestly, that was amazing because what happened is it meant me, meant I really had to go out and journey to find the places in the world where people had amazing conversations and made them work, even under the most dire circumstances. And as I say, at the end of the book, like, it made me realize that at the end I was cured. Um, so one of the, one of these, a, a young woman basically asked me like if I had been, how did it feel? Was I, was I cured? And I was like, I hadn't realized I was sick, but I was, it turns out. Um, and so, so if I seem a little like, you know, starry eyed, I'm just like, it's like, we can get there. I promise. We're, in fact, we are there. We are having hard conversations all the time as a, as a, as humanity. So. Does anyone ever come up to you and say, or just have a conversation with you and at the end say, I almost never have conversations like that, but you must have them every day and, and that they miss it, you know? It's yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's like, but, but the, the reality is that it's like people do have conversations. Yes. I mean, I, I, I get that a lot. I, I, I'm lucky. I get to be in a lot of conversations and I get, I get to sort of, and, and I, I, I meet a lot of people, which I know is, is sort of strange um, and always has been, but, but, um, but yeah, but I also say that in my life, I've had magicians 
of conversation who've been who I've been like some of those my mother my great grandmother but there's also the former prime minister George Papandreou who like is ancient Greek to his core you know who's who taught me about symposium and um and you know Dr. Vivek Murthy the former surgeon general who like who taught me so much about pause and when to when to reflect so I've been lucky in in my life to be able to have like these remarkable people who've been kind of tutors to me um and 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 help me kind of learn how to do this and, and help others do it that that's the thing i just want to kind of say it's the the point here is that it's like the reason i called it making conversation is that it's like i really want to get away from the notion that it's like it's creative or it's like it's like it's like like you, anything you think you can't do you can make a conversation um it's like if you can make your bed you can make a conversation and i and i, I sort of and i feel like the the key point here is that they're the most important things we have they're the most important things we do and if you're not thinking about how you're making them and making them work then you're losing humanity's kind of like most fundamental tool and and that would be a that would be a real loss um uh, and it, it, i mean you 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 all are a great example of how how enduring conversation is to kind of create change and, 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 and make things happen. You tell stories, you mentioned George Papandreou, the, the uh, um, Greek, uh, was he the prime minister? Yeah. And you, why don't you tell a couple of other things of how he did it? It didn't sound like a usual European or certainly not, you know, a Greek, you know, I mean, always, you always get the idea of chaos uh, in the, in the Greek government, uh, you know, since world war two. So um, it, it was very interesting how he went about doing it. Tell a couple of stories because they People won't won't believe it. And just just to let you know, like like George was interesting. He was raised in exile. His father had been exiled, so he was actually he 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 he. I think he grew up in Berkeley, and then went to school at Amherst. And then the moment he could go back to Greece, he he went back to Greece, and um, he just did this like remarkable work. And and I I'm not going to even talk about what when he was prime minister. I'm going to talk about what he did when he was um when he was department of education head because it was really remarkable um so I'll, I'll tell you a story that george would tell you which is that when he was that department of education head they were just as he, as he got voted in they were about to go on strike and what he realized is like if he lost any time a year of the children's lives were going to be lost like they like they, they they would miss a year of school right so these, these are all things that feel somewhat familiar and so usually if you became the minister of education, you wait for like the labor unions to come to you so you can say like, we're going to discuss this. And George was about to do that. And then he paused and he said, no, forget it. I'm going to walk to them. So he walked to their office and he was like, let's talk about this. And then they sat down on the floor eating pizza and beer over three days, which is basically a symposium, by the way. And they worked through it to, to a deal and and stopped um, and, and stopped the strike from happening. So that's George. I mean, G George George is like this like masterful thinker. He was like, I don't want to lose a year of the children's lives because I wait a day to to do this. Um, so he, he's very good at kind of knowing when to make what kinds of choice and when, when to balance. Yeah, the the uh, thing that I uh, want to move on to for you know going through your book a little bit more is the creative listening. If we go to the, we talked a little bit about your mother in it. But there were several other things that you brought up. And one of the things that you mentioned was maybe left over from your, your uh, more failing conversations idea, which was about how television is disruptive and has been disruptive to conversations. So why don't we talk about that for a little while? That's that's right. So so it's interesting. Like so um, Sherry Turkle, who um, who I adore when I when I remember seeing Aspen, meeting her in Aspen and having long conversations about about technology and 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 the, the problem it had. I I actually am. I actually believe that the 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 root of our failing conversations was the moment we brought television to um to our to our dining room table. And so in the early 50s it was like this kind of hallmark moment of kind of like really remarkable innovations in the television space. So the TV tray I think was invented in 1952 um the the clicker or the whatever you call it the 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 um yeah the remote was actually like in 1954 so people could skip commercials. The anchor man who was who was Walter Cron Cronkite basically came in like around that same time. So just and then we put politics and debate onto TV, right? So and so we, we developed pundits, you know, Gore Vidal and um, and um, uh, I can't remember the other person, but the um, Plimpton, Plimpton and Vidal. But it's like the that's that was where we started to erode dialogue um, in America. We gave our, our kitchen table, we gave our dining room table over to the television. The anchor person became our parent figure and then as that as that kind of disseminated 
we started to bring crisis and misery into places that it hadn't been before, like our bedrooms or our, um, or our kitchens. And, and that's kind of where I think we sort of started to see the kind of the downfall of, 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 of conversations in our, in our lives. Does that make sense? I mean, I'm curious. Uh, you know, I have a slightly different take on it. I mean, I, I agree. It's one of the things that's interesting about the development of television is how it shifted based upon the demographics involved. When it gets started, it's only to two or three or four percent of the population, and clearly the richest part of the population adopted it first, uh, on average, I would assume. And uh, there's there's one one example of that from the '90s. It was very late, uh, but in Brazil, uh, television was cheap enough for about half the population until the early '90s, and and the television programs were already not you know excellent. You know, they were certainly not thought provoking, and so on and so forth. But suddenly it was cheap enough that everybody could have TV. So it went from 50% to, to 95% almost overnight, sometime in the early 90s. And the, the shows all went even a, a deeper dive in terms of the, the content quality. Um, so I'm completely on that page from the quality point of view. But at the same time, especially in a crisis like this, you know, how many people get their stories and, and hear the conversations? And so many people are alone. Uh, especially elderly people. Um, and without that, I'll, I'll tell you one short story, uh, a conversation that I had. I was at uh, a mall in, in uh, Madison, Wisconsin. I was looking to buy uh, presents for a couple of girls. And there was a woman uh, in a wheelchair and she'd had diabetes. So she didn't have uh, from her knee down on her legs. Right? And she was mid fifties and clearly a rural Wisconsin woman. And she made Raggedy Ann and Raggedy Andy dolls. And they were you know, really well done. So I bought a couple for these girls. And then just to make conversation, uh, I said to her, so uh, this is really great. It's a great hobby you have and everything. It must be so much nicer than watching the soap operas uh, in the afternoon. And uh, she paused for a second. And she says, uh, I love watching the soap operas in the afternoon. Um, and so, so I took my foot out of my mouth <laughs> and I, I, I said, so uh, that's very interesting. Why? And she paused for a second. She said, because they take me places I've never been and show me people doing things I would never think of doing. So they expand my horizons. And I, I find that very important, at least for me, I was a young man at the time. I've always helped me understand another point of view on television because it, it's, it, it's all relative to what you know and what you understand and what your experiences are as to whether it's expanding or contracting your mind. So can I, can I, you just like illustrated like a bunch of things that are, that are, I talk about like perfectly. So, and, and I'm going to just say something. I just changed my mind. Like I, I got shivers, like I, I got like a little bit of like, a, I could, I could feel the change happening. So I, I want to just sort of say like, one of the things I say that is really important in conversation is that when you see, when you feel a change, you mark a change in a conversation. So I'm just going to say you changed, you changed me. So it's like, and, and I think you're right. You know, it's like, I think about my mom and, you know, being in a, she was in a, in a home, you know, like for, for a long time, cause she was, she had to be in assisted living and, you know, like couldn't easily talk on the phone, was never able to manage an iPhone or an iPad. And really without the television, I think she would have, she would have been sort of like left, left alone for, for so much time. And so I really, although even at the very end, she had a way to kind of attract people. People would come by her room in their wheelchairs or whatever they were. So they could actually just spend time with her, even if she couldn't speak. You know, she she died uh, last year, and um, and it was it was a remarkable thing to see. Um, but but I do I do believe you. I, I, it, there there is value for, for for these things, and it's a great example of like another medium, right? An, an, another 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 mechanism to have to have the conversations we need to have. So, what's ironic is, as you say, most people are waiting to to say what they want in the conversation. When you're watching TV, of course, you just have to keep waiting because. <laughs> But but there are there are people that don't wait. There are people who yell at their television and have a conversation with it. Uh, I mean, not, I'm not encouraging that, but <laughs> no. And and there are families that are inspired by the television to have dialogue that they wouldn't have otherwise, right? So it's right. like so. I I think that we we have to be really like like it's like that that's that's the point around this notion of kind of being endlessly optimistic is like when you just kind of like so. By the way, you did the perfect illumination, right? You told me like a 30 second story about somebody else that kind of both showed their values and showed me something right. and. Yeah, exactly. And, and you, you surprised me. And like, so it's like, see, so and, and then, and then through that, you changed my mind and kind of expanded my, my thinking about that way I, I talk about this. So I will not be, I won't, I won't, I won't condemn it um, as much. That, that said, I will say one thing right now is 
I would be really wary around news hooks um, and kind of and, and balancing your life on the edge of a news hook because I, I, I will say that that, that, that and the, wherever like you take in your news like I, I I read my news and often listen to it on NPR but um, but it's like however you do it you have to kind of be, you have to think pretty thoughtfully about about kind of whether you you give your life over to the news hook um, so that that's one, one thing I would be careful on. Yeah, I think it's it's very clear, uh, you know, and it, there's an economic reason for it. The the, the three uh, networks, ABC, NBC, and CBS, they ruled the roost for such a long time, and then they, when cable came and took their income, um, they had to focus on something, and they focused on politics and sports. That's where all their money is, and so the longer and more time we spend on politics, the better their income is. It's really an unfortunate thing. It also, I think, is one of the reasons people talk about the blue state red state split. But I think that that 50-50 split is 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 encouraged uh, because it, it keeps it keeps the, the it makes it a horse race always. Yeah, I mean it's, the the way I look at it is like that. So I, I was talking to my publisher in in January and I was like, you know, we're gonna have a pandemic, and she was like, you're crazy. And the, the only way I knew that is because I was I would skip the headlines right. and something. And and if you read down, you knew that something else was happening. Right. And so it's like a, it's, 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 it's a fascinating thing to kind of like uh, to, to think about like how you train yourself and how you kind of take in the the media and the news that you, that you grapple with. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. I was just gonna say, it's great that you read down in the material where there's a rational discussion about it. Other people go down and ask you what's going on and, and uh, they, everybody, everybody has their different sources and it's uh, you know, I didn't mean by the story, especially on TV or the internet or anything, that, that this is all harmless uh, fun uh, or, or harmless conversation because it's not. No. I, I, I agree with that. I mean, I, I, th- I think we're coming from the same space. I, th- I think it's just that it's like it's like it's recognized. I mean, because it's like we, we don't actually watch television, but we, we do watch television shows. You know, it's like it, it really it really matters to us that we can actually kind of same that we can kind of do the escape that we need to be doing. So it's just like it's right. like it's we, we, we do need the things. You know, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't have made it through without Queen's Gambit, for instance. Oh, you liked it too. I love that. <laughs> yeah. And and we, we, my husband now, well, chess is too stressful, but we play dominoes. So it's <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I want to say one thing about Queen's Gambit as long as you brought it up. I love the ending of it because I was in the Soviet Union in 1973, which was exactly when that was set. And they got it right, both the depression, but also the generosity of the people. And I loved the ending that she skipped the president and went out and played chess with the people on the street that was very oh. well written whoever did that wasn't that an amazing moment i'm really i'm trying to perfect my like look down and then look up look that she does so well in the Queen's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well now we have a conversation about the queen's gamut but maybe another time <laughs> yeah definitely let's let, let's come back to that it's important uh, early days of television one last thing you you told about the toddler's truce in england i don't think people know about this I, that was a great little piece of information tell tell people about that isn't that bizarre so it's yeah, like so bizarre so, so television in television in the uk for a while had this thing that was like an hour and i think it was between six and seven called toddler's truce where parents could put their children to sleep without missing a program. So basically that all the programming would stop so that they wouldn't have to miss anything. And then they could actually put their children to, um, to, to bed, which it's one of those things where it's like, you know, this, it's like, it's like where, where, where the fact that like reality is stranger than fiction. <laughs> you're just like, like <laughs> I came across that. It, there, there's another story in there about Abraham Lincoln, where I remember like I was talking to my editor and she was like, yeah, this didn't happen. Somebody made this story up about, about duels. And I'm like, it's a real thing. It happened, and so it's like I was, I was like so happy to prove that yes, this, that, that that Abraham Lincoln and duels did did in fact happen. I can back you up. We just did a book on Abe, uh, and and it was in there too. Oh, was uh, it? Oh, was good to know. Yeah. So so that that was good. Yeah, you described it very well. Why don't you tell that story? Because I like that. That was setting the rules. We're not to that yet, but let's let's tell that one right now because that was yeah, a great I, I, great way that he got out of the duel. <laughs> I, I, I think it's I think it's it's so fascinating, and it's like um so so I I really love that story as well. Um so it's um and it was like it was like one of these things where you find it and you're like this is a gift. And by the way, I, I talked to like news outlets and they're like, this is so futuristic. And I was like, no 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 this is so ancient. Like, this is all history. Like, it's like, go, go back and, and, and read the history books and you're going to find this. And so um, there's this thing that governed duels called the Code Duello. And most often we think about it in the Hamilton way, which is like the 10, you know, it's like, it's like the, the countdown and, and there's like very strict rules. Um, 
by around the 1840s around the world people were like yeah i kind of don't want to die you know it's like it's like i i really i i don't want to be insulted but i'm not sure i want to die over this and so around that time they shifted the language of the code duello so i mean hamilton ironically was a was a bit of a um anomaly at the time um because the rules became then that if i challenged you to a duel george which i won't um but if I did, then my role was to give you the rules. So you got to design the rules so that you would actually like, most likely we would both survive typically. And so the most famous duel that was never fought, at least the one that, that I, I can think of, is um, Abraham Lincoln was 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 um, was challenged to a duel by a, a friend of his on something that they like they they disagreed on, but then they gave the rules over to Abraham Lincoln. So basically, he was the one who had the had the rules, and Abraham Lincoln was like, well, "What am I going to do?" And then he basically developed the rules. And so when they got to the dueling field, he had decided that they would fight with Revolutionary War broadswords. They would have to stay twelve feet apart, so it's COVID safe um, duel. And they would they, they would they would you know and they would they would fight in like I think it was they were in regalia, and basically um, the guy who he, who challenged him was like this is so ridiculous. And they all started laughing and they just went off and had a, had a drink. And so uh, it's a great example. I mean, so I use that in the book to talk about the idea of critique, which is one of the things that I have to do most often in my work is kind of give somebody give critique of their work. And it's a, one of the things I've learned from that, or I actually was doing before, but now I'm like, I've got, I've got pretty good backing is I would always say, okay, I have, I have the power. I'm going to give the power to you, the team that I'm going to be working with. You tell me what not to touch and I won't touch it. You tell me where you need the most help, and then you hand the power back to me. And so we'll, we'll then we'll just work together on the things that you need to do. And that simple shifting of like the power for a moment really radically shifts the way that that dialogue kind of plays out and the way critique feels because of that. So that's that's how how I got to. It wasn't because of Abraham Lincoln. I learned that afterwards. But yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a great story. And it's, Twelve feet away with broadswords, so uh, not anybody's even gonna get scratched, right? So <laughs> yeah, no, we're we're we're, we're fine. <laughs> You'd lose your honor by looking ridiculous even more so. <laughs> uh, another story that you told that I really liked was uh, about the girl who said she didn't read. And and a lot of students say that they don't read. And then and you went into her bedroom. So why don't you tell the story? I thought that was great. This is one of my favorite stories. And this was done for like, it was done for like a major online university. And basically the university had done their research and they basically were like, no, our, our students aren't readers. We know that you know, definitely, we know, we know that, 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 that nobody um, reads. And we were, we would be going out doing these kind of these, these uh, ethnographic work, like going out into sitting in people's living rooms and talking about how they learn and what they do and kind of go through their online courses with them. And this woman was like, who we were at, we were with was basically like, oh, just so you know, like, um, or we, we were like, so do you read? And she's like, no, I never read. Ugh, I was just, I was not born a reader. That's just not the way I consume information. Like, it's like, it's all through video content or whatever. And so we're like, okay. And so at IDEO, well, we would always end by kind of walking through somebody's house. We'd be like, give us a little tour around. We'd like to get a sense of, of who you are as a person. And so we're walking through her house and we get into her bedroom. And in the bedroom, there's pretty much every single book where a vampire is having sex with a werewolf um, like that you can possibly imagine. Cause you knew we were going to get back to sex. That's just the way it was going to go. So, but, but, but we were like, we were like, okay, wait, you totally read. Like there's like, there's like thousands of books here. Cause there's a lot of books written about vampires having sex with werewolves and, and so on. And, um, and she's like, Oh, well that's not reading. That's just like, that's like trash. And we're like, no, that's reading. And, and by the way, that's, that's a huge kind of tell on what, what what kind of material helps her kind of advance, and it gives it gives us a really remarkable thing to do. So, um, it's 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 why one of the things that's really interesting, and I can't remember the name of the site. What Wattpad, I think, is what it's called. Um, it's a it is a fan fiction site, um, and 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 the idea that you can use that fan fiction site as a way to kind of get kids to write and read is a really interesting kind of way in. I think actually. Is that one of the ideas you had? I mean, you you mentioned that you used that to, to find something that was addicting. You know, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So it's like if you could if you could wrap things up into things that felt more like they were like they were like little like cliffhangers, like little good stories, right? That like that leave you hanging in 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 a way, and then that they kept you coming back, kind of like the way my grandmother used to do. Then like you, you were gonna kind of you you couldn't help it. You become addicted to to the conversation, and you had to be there. So so yeah, that's that's one of the ways we did it. It wasn't necessarily we put vampires 
and and uh, and and werewolves in it but it, it was just like we 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 really thought through the way the content was actually kind of like poised set up and and kind of and, and how short it could be i mean one of the things i'm doing right now is we're building out a whatsapp 30 second curriculum um that, that allows you to kind of begin to practice these things in really simple short ways and we're kind of applying the same principles there as we go so you might have a little trouble selling that to yale though <laughs> yeah yale's not the intended audience <laughs> i know <laughs> All right. So um, that's creative listening. The next section is clarity. Um, and you almost sounded like a lawyer there to find the terms first. No. <laughs> <laughs> but you want to say a little bit about that idea. Yeah. Why you need clarity. Yeah. I have a friend who's a lawyer who's like, if we were, if we, if we followed this, we would have no business. Like, uh, <laughs> 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 I have a lot of friends who are lawyers. Um, so yeah, the the premise here actually, and this this quite real, like this this came out of architecture. Is that as I was like learning architecture, I realized that there were words that you learn that actually hide meaning, not clarify meanings. So a classic example, and by the way, there's a big backlash right now in this in architecture. Ar architects are changing their language, and that's a really good thing. Is is like so you, you would say intervention, and what you really meant was a, a window or a bench, or a, you know, a bookshelf, or, or something else. But as, as a client, there's no way to know what an intervention is. There's like, there's no kind of clarity in that thing. And so one of the things when I got went to IDEO, I, I really wanted to do is basically be like, hey, like, we're going to talk normal, like, we're going to, we're going to kind of get rid of all the jargon and everything in there. And I will say, the embarrassing part of that chapter, which was originally called Talk Normal, but of course, had to become a C, um, is that in the opening paragraph, I don't know if you noticed this, there's a word that I put in there, which is obfuscates, like make sure that it, and I was like, we could have caught that. Like I was, I was literally like, I was like, I can't believe I'm using obfuscates. But really quickly on the history of that, like I think that, that one, one of the things that really kind of was inspirational for me was, was when we were doing work in a hospital, they were basically kind of focused on like the emergency room, realizing that about half the people in the room knew what the word triage was. And triage is a really important word to know if you're coming into the emergency room. Um, and that's and triage, as you I know, comes right. from the the ancient or it comes to the idea of kind of separating the wheat um, from chaff. And then it was used during World War One in the trenches as a way um, to to kind of to to figure out who's going to be able to be saved and who wasn't. But if you're in an emergency room, what you really need is someone to just say like, "Go here." You know, th this is important place. You know, here, here arrow, um, not not triage. So the work we did with the with the healthcare professionals was like, listen, use specialized language when you're talking to each other. So don't when you're in a surger surgery say, give me the shiny knife thing that I'm going to use to whatever. Just like, you say scalpel, like whatever that is. But when you're talking to a patient, really talk, try to talk as normal as possible. Yeah, yeah, that was a very good example of you know because every every. A group of professionals ends up with their own kind of language that they learned and you know they all learn the same things in school and it becomes obscure and obfuscates what they're talking about to other people right that's 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 totally right and so it's like i i feel like it's like and again it's it's not to say that like we need you to be pros like it's like that's like that's like you, we need healthcare professionals to be like really good but it's like but with us just make sure to try to talk as normal as possible well you pick seven c's all of which are normal so let's go to the fourth i think fourth one yeah third one uh, con fourth one context context when i read your chapter i thought this is sort of like feng shui for uh, for conversations uh, it's, uh, location <laughs> location locations <laughs> oh my so, god that's like that's the best compliment i've ever gotten i'm not, I'm not sure you meant it as a compliment but i like i love that that is like genius. Thank you. <laughs> so the idea I mean, for context for the, conversation the i mean you talk about how important the location is and everything like that but to, but give a, maybe give a couple of your examples so that people understand why yeah, the context I mean, is sometimes important in a conversation yeah, and it's interesting, like, so, like, as you know, in the book, there's these things called these conversation breaks, which are these little kind of things. I was just with my team the other day, and they're like, I never really understood this this one conversation break called script setting or, or script spotting, which is the, the conversation break just before. And I was like, that's about recognizing that there's scripts in every conversation, and you have to be able to spot them as they go forward. But one of the things that really, like, solidly holds our, um, sets the kind of tone of a conversation is the spaces that we have our conversations in, um, even now. Like, I, I know it might might seem strange, but it's like, but you and I spent some time thinking about the spaces we were in beforehand and how, how, how we did it. And it, it's because it matters. It, it matters to the, the way the, under, the conversation is understood and kind of and is taken. And so um, 
it's, it's why, for instance, when I did the PBS NewsHour thing, I did it from my kitchen table because I knew I wanted to talk about the kitchen table and what happens when we lost the kitchen table conversations. Um, so space really matters. And um, I, 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 I'm just going to ask you, George, like if I asked you to describe a board meeting, what would you say to me? Exactly what you said in the book, a big, long table with a home. In fact, I worked at a law firm where, where they created a whole uh, series of those things, every one of them to look exactly like a movie set for conversations at board meetings. And then it was used in the movie Michael Clayton years later. So they hit it. They hit it right. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And so it's like so. And then if I were to say AA meeting, you would say probably church basement, folding chairs, right. whatever. Um, and the, the reality is that that's a great example where it's like like. Most people, when you say board meeting, which I didn't say board room, I said board meeting, will describe the room, um, which, which is that's because we are like supremely good um, visual thinkers. Like we're, we're like we're really good at, at kind of like the, our memories are built based on on the mnemonics, like mnemonic devices. And those are often quite strongly visual. And so it's why if I ask you where you were when 9-11 happened, you'll you'll know. You know, it's like, or, or where, like, ask you where you were when last Wednesday happened, you'll know, like, it's like, most likely, I mean, it, it depends if whether you were tuned in or not, but, but um, 9-11, probably more so, you know, it's like, and so one of the things that I actually talk about in the book, and there's positive haunting and negative haunting. So sitting at my grandmother's, like, um, swing, I get haunted by my grandmother in a good way. I get haunted by the really good conversations that she and I used to have, Um but if you go, for instance, into the room where everybody always gets fired, which, you know, there's always like that one space where somebody's always like getting like, you know, it's like whatever, then um, then you're going to be haunted by those conversations that, that are there. And so what I really talk about a lot is like, really be careful. I mean, example, it's like if you were if you were in bed watching the news when 9-11 happened, um, maybe consider getting rid of that bed. Or maybe consider like you know changing where your your bed, where your sleep is if you if if you're just so you the conversations you have there actually feel like the the right thing. So yeah, it's it's true for a lot of people. If someone dies in your house, you often get rid of the bed too. Same same basic idea. In this case, it was just coming into our house from the outside. That's that's right. And I, I will say what, what's interesting about that is that I thought this was going to be useless. Like as I was having to like edit the book during the pandemic, I was like this this doesn't matter at all. And I was like oh wait this totally matters. It's like, it's like, it's like, it's, it's actually almost more useful than, than, than you would imagine. So. Well, you talk about sacred spaces and all kinds of things like that in your book too, uh, as asides. Um, but in the same time, uh, that that's been very carefully designed for, for uh, millennium also um, to carry on those conversations. Um, and as you say, the kitchen is designed that way. And I, I just one shout out uh, to, to Alex Hernandez, who, who designed the Commonwealth club space a little bit uh, when we, moved into a new building designed for really good for conversations and it really for, for uh, big lectures and uh, medium-sized lectures and small spaces. It's got just the right mix uh, of, of things. And fortunately, unfortunately, I haven't been able to use it for almost a year, but, uh, but it's a great space for conversations. It, it, it really is. Very cleverly and done. Like, yeah. And, and, you know, one thing I'll just sort of say, and I, I mean, obviously like I was originally an architect by training, but it's like, is that it's like, I really, I'm like, like, don't lose faith in the power of a building. Like we, we need buildings now. Like we are, we're going to need homes to go. We're going to need places to have these conversations. Like when, 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 when this is over. So it's like, it, it, it's like that building may feel like it's like, it's a remnant, but it's not, it's really, it's like, it, it, you will need to go home at some point. It's a fascinating part of our current culture that we don't build really, I mean, we build some really cool buildings, but we don't build the kind of permanent structures that have been built for thousands of years uh, before as a space when we have much more money to, to build those kinds of things. The amount of, uh, of the income of a village that went into their church was a tremendous amount of, you know, and they'd spent a hundred years on it. I always think of, of uh, talking about conversations and board meetings. I always think about the Parthenon in Rome and the Parthenon in Rome has been there for 2000 years. And, and people say, it's a miracle. It's still here. I said, no, the real miracle is that at least 15 times, the board of directors of the Parthenon over the last 2000 years has had to have a meeting and decide it's more expensive to repair this and keep it than it is to tear it down and sell off the pieces. But we have to do it anyway. 15 times in a row that decision was made. That's the miracle. Not, not that it's still standing. That's the way I look at it. Those it's it's so interesting. I got, I got to spend time with um, some people in, in Athens um, where one of the things that they start have started to do, I don't know if you know this, like is like with construction, when they find a new ruin, they're just like, 
yeah, let's just cover that up for the next generation because we, we don't have we don't, we don't need any more ruins. So so which which I which I don't know if that's the, I mean I, that was that was I think at the at the the museum at the Parthenon. So I, I have to believe that that's a true yeah. a true story. But it was it was it's kind of a remarkable thing I think that 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 which I kind of believe you know like let the next generation yeah. discover something like that's 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 something that that's a gift. Yeah, uh, the the Egyptians feel the same way. Uh, they have so much under the sand, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but they still keep finding stuff. It's it seems like, oh, yeah. <laughs> and they're always hoping it'll be gold. Yeah, exactly. So so I've been looking down because a lot of questions are coming in, and uh, let's let's ask a couple of them before we get to the next two from our uh, listeners. So Diane asked, "There are so many parallels between communication theory and mindfulness meditation." keeping space and equanimity and keeping beginning and keep beginning again. And she, we haven't gotten to that yet, but you do mention that in your book. So you want to talk about it a little bit? I do. And Diane, like clever. And I, I don't, I don't know which Diane is, but I, hi, Diane. Um, I, I will say that the way, the reason I ended up going with my publisher is that, cause you know, you, you go around, you get these little pitches and they're like, they're like, here's what we can do for you. Here's what this is, is my publisher at HarperCollins who I just love. Um, was like came in. She was like, I love this book. She's like, I'm I'm a deep meditator, and it really reminds me of mindfulness for conversation. That's really that, that was her pitch back to me, and I was like, you totally get it, um, and and that's it. Like, and, and we we had we had a deal basically within 24 hours because I just felt like she had so much respect for what the content was, and and really did understand it, and um, and she had also gone through a really interesting period of mourning. And so she really had, she had a lot of thinking around kind of how this plays. So she had a very sophisticated take on, on, on why this might matter. So. Right, here's a question from Linda Lenoir. Mr. Dust, can you talk more about your experience at IDEO? It has such a diverse group of people working there. How did you help to make conversing easier for the staff? Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's a, it's, it's such an interesting thing. I mean, it's like my team now, which is not at IDEO, but it's on my own. It's like, it's like they're, they're, um, they're they're very mutt like in the sense that they're kind of they're 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 mixed breeds like i have, I have a mixed breed dog and I, I we get along really really well um and so I, I, honestly one of the things that you start to do is you establish a set of rules for the way conversations will happen right so just like i talked about the rules for critique you actually think about like different kinds of constraints so that you can actually have people have the dialogue they want to have um and so i i really think that's one of the ways that we actually we get to do it. I mean, just to be honest, I was on the phone with the CEO of IDEO, Sandy Spiker, last night, and and I, I basically was like, let's let's set the rules for this conversation because it's like what we want, we're going to talk about here is like is super sensitive, and I wanted to make sure that she felt good and I felt good, and and so we sort of set the rules and we we, we abided by them, and it allowed us to get to like a very rich, deep spot without actually having to um without without damaging anyone um and not and so so I think one of the one of the premises that I have is that there are always rules in a conversation. So get good at spotting them. And if they're not working, consider setting or resetting the rules. And George, if you can't change the rules and you're in a conversation that makes you unsafe, it's okay for you not to step into that conversation. Like it's like, it, it's like, it's like if, if, if people can't make the conversation feel good to you, then, then it's one less meeting in your life. It's one, one less conversation. Don't just don't do it until it feels safe. Yeah, we sort of have have uh, learned as children. At least some of us uh, have learned as children that one one has to fix every situation and 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 work with whatever one has to deal with and everything like that. And that 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 may work in a more homogenous culture. And the, the the broader the culture gets, the the more that's not such good advice, you know. Yeah, no, yeah. and it's interesting because it's like there's a there in the book. I think I talk about it. Or I don't. I don't know. Maybe I, it's in something else. The responsive class classroom, which is where basically teachers work with students to actually set the rules for the, to, for the, to get to the goals for their year. And the rules for that are like, they have to be completely positive. They have to be like, so instead of saying, um, don't run with the scissors or a hatchet or whatever, it's like, it's like, stay safe, you know, is, is, is the, is the thing. Or my favorite rule of all kind, um, joy or, or be joyful or something like that, which I, which I, I just think is like amazing. So, yeah. Some teachers need to learn that first. <laughs> well, kindergartners are pretty good at it on their own, so it's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at least the first graders are. <laughs> that's true. That's true. <laughs> um, so uh, this is a comment from uh, Teresa Marlene. I'm quarantined alone, so the TV is my saving grace now. So she's backing up the earlier conversation we Teresa, had. Teresa, like more power, and I'm glad. I'm really glad George changed my mind. So thank you. <laughs> 
And uh, the next question, Shelly Duncan asked uh, or comments. My dad's dad would say we were given two ears and one mouth, emphasizing how important listening is in conversation always is. That is so great. And I, honestly, one thing I just love about that is like, I, it, it, like that little, like, I think it's a homily, but, but it's like that, that little simple phrase are like those, those things are like so easily memorable. And, it, and also whenever you invoke something that like you got taught by from your, from your family, it's like you, you, you're, you're bringing them back to life, right? I don't know if he's alive or whatever, but it's like but bring, bringing them into the conversation. And so that's a gift in so many ways. So I, I really appreciate it. I love those kinds of sayings. Um, I did just so you know, George, I did a whole thing in Texas where we basically, I just tried to decipher Texanisms and then they try to decipher my text and my, 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 my versions of like sayings. And like, we got about half of it, right. It's like, it was, it was really fun. Well, that's, it's true with Europeans too. They have lots of different uh, um, sayings uh, that are almost incomprehensible if you don't know them until, until you can match them up with a similar one. I mean, Americans, Americans have so many of them that come from the wild West and people don't even realize, you know, it's like, you know, that's, that's totally right. Well, and it's funny. Cause it's like, I, like I, I lived in France for, part of my high school years um and uh the sayings there like if, if you could get a saying down people thought you were fluent in french so if you could say like on the tip of on the tip of my tongue um then you they were people were like oh my god you're a fluent speaker i'm like nope that's just i just know that it's like <laughs> all right so here's a good uh, another follow-up from uh, Teresa marlene with everything being virtual now i'm very concerned we are losing our personal touch so we were discussing that earlier um and I, I really, I personally think that personal touch comes from your personality. Um, and I think everybody's going to be very eager, to, even those that were getting bored with it <laughs> or, or tired of it are not going to be so tired of it. I think it'll be a very good renaissance for personal touch right after this is over. I don't know. What do you I, think, Fred? I, I think that's really true. I think that there's a lot of people who are sort of saying it's going to, it's, we're going to sort of see like a, a renaissance that, that will emerge out of this because people are going to be, are going to be so like anxious to kind of go into this. And so I, and so obviously I, I, I believe that's true. And, and I, but I do appreciate the notion of the personal touch because I think, I don't know if I, I wrote about it, but one of the things I wanted to talk about is the idea of owning your voice, you know, which is like the, like, there, there's like, there's like only one voice that I have and it's like, I can't change it for you. You know, it's like, so it's like, so I, I, I show up the way I show up and, and that's, and that's the same thing. It's like, it's, it's, it's what you're talking about. I think is, is your personal touch and you can really only be you very well. And that's, and that's a really remarkable thing. Well, you, you mentioned the showing up. That's one of the comments, but you didn't say owning your voice uh, that I, as I remember in the book. However, uh, that's, that's a really interesting point because uh, a lot of people, at least our age go to high school reunions uh, and stuff like that. And a lot of times you cannot recognize the face of the person or anything, but you can recognize their voice. Um, you know, the, the voice is the thing that's about the hardest thing to, to, to fake. Um, I mean, we have some artists that are very good at, at imitating other people and their voices and so on and so forth, but that's very hard to do. Um, mostly people with their own voice is very distinctive, every single person. You know, it's so funny. Cause I, I'll, I'll tell you a little um, story. So I had a, I had a young woman designer, um, who worked with me for years, she actually went on to kind of be the co-founder of IDEO.org and now runs this amazing institution. And she um, she had a very high voice, a high little voice, the kind of voice that people will say, oh, those, those are the kinds of voices that CEOs can't hear. And so for years and years and years, she was like, um, please give me voice training. And I was like, I really didn't want to do it. And I was just like, and she was like, please, please, please. And so I finally got her voice training and I found her outside of IDEO one, one afternoon smoking cigarettes. And I was like, what are you, what are you doing? And she was like, this is what she, my voice coach told me how to do. It's the only one that's going to deepen my voice. Yeah. And I, and I was, I was like, we're firing the voice, voice coach and we're going to do the work to make sure that every time you say something smart, we're going to say, thank you, Patrice, for saying that. I said her name, but she would, she'd be okay with it. It's like, it's like, but you, it's like we, we just got to see her, but we, we, we said, thank you. And like my favorite moment in all time was actually being in a meeting with a bunch of Texan men and she was saying something really genius. And this, the main guy who ran this kind of consortium in Texas was like, everybody shut up and listen to Little Squeak or something like that. Like, and, like, and like everybody just stopped and turned and listened to Patrice. And that, that was remarkable. It was like a little bit. I think he called her a little bit. <laughs> that's, uh, that, that's remarkable in Texas. So a very uh, un unusual uh, CEO. 
because uh, it, it is it is a serious problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's but I think it's like that's the point. Is like just like stick with your voice. Like it's like it, you know it needs you. You need it. It's 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 a smart way to go forward. Well, I'll tell you how somebody turned around a conversation in my work. I went with a Texan since you're with Texan. Um, I went with a Texan client who who worked for an oil company down to Bolivia, uh, and in in to do a deal where we're going to do. Um, a water power plant on a river that used to run for the tin mines. And the tin mines had been owned by one family for 350 years. And that family, we were negotiating with a, a joint venture. Well, that family, the guy in charge of that family, the patriarch of the family, had been the secretary of state for Bolivia and all kinds of things. But he was five foot five or five foot four. Um, and, and not, not his voice, but his height. And the Texan was six foot four. And he, he, he did the Lyndon Johnson thing when he wanted to do something. He, he leaned over the other person, you know, and tried to intimidate him down. Uh, and he, he did that at, a, at about nine in the morning one, one time in, in the negotiations. Um, and he could, I could tell he was, the, the Texan was my client. The guy on the other side was the Bolivian. I could tell he couldn't stand it. And I was trying to figure out how am I going to solve this problem? Well, he solved it for me, the Bolivian. He, at about 11 o'clock, he suddenly said, you know, that's enough for today. He said, I, I think what we need is, you know, this is your break idea, right? I think what we what we need is to take a take a, a break and and let's all come over to my house for dinner tonight. So everybody come to my house for dinner. So we're here in La Paz, Bolivia. It's at thirteen thousand feet. You know, we, we we go to his house. It's his family house that's been there for three hundred and fifty years. You know, the Texan comes in. He sees original Spanish art from three hundred years ago on the walls. You know, silver everywhere. They were brought into a space. Uh, you know, this this really is all your stuff. It brought into a big room with a long, thin table to seat about 20 people. But but the table only took up about 10% of the room. It was just a huge, big, wide-open room with art all over. And and so we were all sitting there, and, and he put the Texan at one end of the table and himself at the other end of the table. And we chatted about it, you know, a bunch of nonsense for, for a while, just chit-chat. And then and then the host, the Bolivian, said, is everyone ready to eat? Yes, everyone's ready. And he just went like that. Eight doors opened up on both sides. These servants came out, put everything down, disappeared through the doors again, came. And it was, it was an orchestrated thing. My, my client never leaned over him again. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And I'm curious for Teresa, like, you just took us someplace, George. That was amazing. Like, it's like you, you, you just, like, it's like you, you basically did a little, like, Queen's Gambit in, like, whatever that was. Like, like in 45 seconds. It was really well done. Thank you. <laughs> I loved it. All right, so uh, it's getting near the end, but let's see. Uh, Cheryl Gale says, it's extremely difficult for me to re remain calm and centered when I hear the word like. Repeatedly, any suggestions on how to talk to a person in a way that is not offensive? All right, since I'm in California. <laughs> no, go, go ahead, Fred. <laughs> well, I mean, I, honestly, I, I, I say like, I have to be honest, quite quite a lot. I also say awesome, but I'll, to be honest, to, the other thing is, I'll go to Maine, for instance, and everybody says, correct. And I'm just like, so you'll be like, oh, like, I think I had too much to drink. And they're like, correct. You know, it's like, it's like, and you're like, wait, how, how does that happen? So there are these little things that do that. And one of the things I, I kind of, I've been talking about a lot recently, that's not in the book is like, is to recognize the things that are triggering to you. And one of the things that, so like, if something that basically kind of makes you feel like, oh, I'm going to react to that, like, whether it's in positive or negative or whatever. And when you feel like that's happening, maybe take a pause take a breath and then just before you actually respond. And I think often that very short, short breath will allow you to kind of make sure that you're not kind of, you're not triggered. And I'll, I'll, let me give you one example, which is in the book, which is the hardest conversation I ever had was with um, my New York neighbor the day, the day I moved in. So I basically was like, she came pounding the door. I was alone in the house. Like we had just moved in. Like there was like, it was, it was just like stuff all over. I was going to cry. I was like, why did I move to New York? And she's just like, you broke all the building's rules and you used the elevator that I wasn't supposed to use. And she's just like screaming at me. And I was going to, I was like, there's no way I'm going to be just like this kind of like, let this New York woman just kind of take me down. Cause I'm Californian. And I said, I paused, took a breath. I was about to jump down her throat. And then I was like, is this really the way you want our conversation to start? And she, she stopped and she was like, no, it's not. And then that's it. We were friends for like the next three yeah. years that we lived in that building. So, so just reflect on it, like that, like the things, the things that trigger and, and whether or not that's like really the way you want to kind of go into a conversation. You should tell that story to the state departments all around the world, you know, because really, you know, uh, it's the way a lot of conversations start. And we, we do so many things in politics 
that could be could be fixed with a little bit of understanding. But again, you know, that's a different topic. Well, but just so you know, that 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 will happen. So, <laughs> but I, I I wanted to have you tell that one story, which I just love about the the mayor of Bogota, uh, how he solved the jaywalking problem. I, and 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 may I say before he finishes with this. Uh, that there's lots of other good stories in the book too. We can't tell them all, but this one I, I want everyone to hear because it's just great. Well, you know what? In, in in a traditional lecture, this is the story I would always end on because I think it's just such a great yeah. it's such a great story. So it's 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 a good choice. So one of my heroes I've never met, Antonius Antonius Macus, who was the mayor of Bogota um, at, at the time. One of the things they were really dealing with, and and it, they, you still do, is the idea that like people are not very good at paying attention to to, to stoplights and the in, in Bogota and they're not very good at paying attention to crosswalks. And so what would happen is if you were jaywalking and a car was like speeding through like the traffic fatality deaths, like the, the pedestrians were, was really high when he inherited it. And they thought of all these different things that they would do that they could, they could figure out. They're like, we're going to do really heavy fines, but he's like, nobody's gonna ever pay the fines and all these kinds of things. And finally he was like, I know what everybody hates more than anything, which is like losing their pride. Like like not like being being humiliated um, in in public, and so that's that's like a that's like a deep Colombian thing, and so um, and it's it's by the way that's just a deep thing everywhere, and so one of the things he did is he trained the police officers um, to be mimes, he he trained them he or he actually in some cases he replaced them with mimes, and what he found is just being kind of followed by a mime, which nobody wants is, is enough to basically like stop the, um, the, the, the conversation from happening like, to, to stop the infraction. And I think by the end of his tenure, tra traffic fatalities had dropped by about half. Um, and so what, one of the reasons why I always end with that is that it's a great example where it's like, sometimes you can't know, right? Like it's like, sometimes you just don't, you don't, you can't know the answer. And so, sometimes just consider whether you're going to be brave enough to put that action into the world. Um, and sometimes that's the right thing to do. And, and even a conversation can be even just a small act of bravery, tiny, 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 not like flying across like the Atlantic, but just like very small and, and learn to practice like everyday kind of bravery, little small thing. You use a couple other examples like that where you say it really works. And unfortunately, it's based on shame. And, and shaming culture, of course, is something that we're getting more of. I, I even wonder sometimes whether we haven't got a, a cultural exchange going on with China right now where they're borrowing capitalism and we're borrowing their shame culture. Yeah, I mean, it's very, it's really interesting. But I will say that one of the things that is interesting about that is that it's still um, it's shaming. And yet mimes can be really funny. You know, and so it's like it, it can actually a good mime can actually allow you to kind of like play off of it. Going back to that second city analogy, it's like where it's like it's really like they can both protect you and, you know, support you. You know, it's like in this really interesting way. So, well, that's why I like the, the story, because uh, I don't think we're going to get away. I mean, the Puritans were into shame culture, all kinds of you know, we can never get away from shame culture. But I think we at least should try to make it lighthearted and then we it, it, it will work and it's not so uh, damning. Yeah, I, 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 no, I, I, I think you're entirely right. But that's, that's by the way, the reason why court jesters' lives were often quite short. Um, you know. <laughs> <laughs> what joke have you told for me lately, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, thank you very, very much, Fred. Um, so, uh, so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in its 118th year of light, enlightened discussion. Um, looking forward to your next book, Fred. Thanks a lot for joining us. It was a delight. Thank you so much, George. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.